On today's show, I welcome Xavier Boffer. Xavier is the Executive Director of the Samuel Griffith Society, who's just finished hosting their 32nd annual conference of the Society. He's also a former uh, president of the National Liberal Students Federation and a former advisor to the Victorian Shadow Attorney General. Xavier, welcome to the CIS. Thanks, Glenn. It's great to be on the show. Look, to kick us off, Xavier, tell us a little bit about the work of the Samuel Griffith Society and what contribution it makes to the, to the debate on, on issues. Well, Glenn, the Samuel Griffith Society has existed for 30 years. We just celebrated, as you mentioned, our 30th anniversary conference in Sydney. It's actually our 32nd conference, but um, as uh, uh, was mentioned on the weekend, not fake news. We had a couple of years where there were, were two conferences. But what the society focuses on are two primary issues, constitutional issues and broader legal issues. Our mission is to uphold and defend the Constitution, to promote its virtues, to educate people about the virtues of federalism, the federal system and the safeguards in our Constitution. So and why, is, why are those issues? I mean, they seem very kind of high level, right? So, you know, the Constitution, Federation, these seem very disconnected from daily lives and everyday interactions that people have, you know, with with the legal system or with, you know, the economy, society and so on, what makes the work uh, fundamental to the, the lives of ordinary citizens? Well, you're right, Glenn. It can seem quite academic, uh, the sort of constitutional matters that we deal with. But I assure you, they do have a constant impact on everyday life. And I think um, that has been made entirely clear by the last two years, the COVID pandemic looking at issues like whether states can unilaterally close their borders to interstate travellers, for instance, or looking at the limits on the power of uh, parliaments and governments to make sweeping laws governing uh, everyday life. Those are all issues that fundamentally come back to the powers outlined in the Constitution. So I suppose, yeah, I think COVID is, is a really good time to be re-looking at and re-examining some of those issues, isn't it? Because, I mean, so much of our focus has been upon uh, people like uh, chief health officers and, and other, other individuals that, that have played obviously an elevated role through handling a public health crisis. But there's also questions around executive accountability, questions around... Uh, you know what what uh, what role and justification can be grounded for for some of the decision making and uh, and justification and i'll note that there were some excellent presentations to that effect through the course of of your conference over the weekend can you give us a bit of a feel for some of the kind of observations and discussions coming out of out of the the community as far as reflections in that respect yeah we were very fortunate this year we had 17 speakers across the weekend uh, which is the most ever. And um, the idea was that probably all likelihood was that at least one would have to withdraw due to COVID, but we were very fortunate that uh, we didn't. So we heard a lot of, of papers on a range of different topics. Um, obviously, there were a few on COVID uh, and specifically the role of federalism in uh, government responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, how government responses may have been improved uh, had they been more influenced by the principles of federalism and uh, a stricter reading of our constitution. Uh, and Toomey gave a very interesting paper on the um, 
issue of border closures, the Palmer case, Section 92 of the Constitution. And uh, it was quite interesting to hear from her that although Palmer lost his challenge to WA's laws, mm. she thinks that um, a range of COVID measures, not just border measures, but also public health measures at the state level um, in other states, were they to be challenged, might not survive. And, uh, and her opinion was that if she was in state government, she'd be looking very closely at those issues and fixing things up. So that was quite interesting. Uh, but also we heard a paper from Dr. Yanina Bowie, who uh, spoke about delegated uh, legislation. And um, I think that's another really important area. It's for your viewers who may not be familiar with the legal jargon. Uh, that's when parliaments give authority, they delegate authority to public servants, to bureaucrats to make rules that are effectively enforced like laws. But they don't uh, go through the normal parliamentary procedure. They're not debated in parliament in the public view. They're just made, uh, if you will, in a back room by bureaucrats mm -hmm. and then enforced uh, with the same uh, force as laws. And, and she raised some real, really interesting and important issues about the rise of delegated legislation and uh, why we need to be careful about uh, engaging in too much delegated lawmaking. And there's a point out of that, that that issues like uh, mandates and, and health orders, freedom, restrictions on freedom of movement and so on, uh, were not necessarily made by the minister themselves? Or is that would that be a fair assessment of that? 100%. Um, that's quite right. So it's when we are giving chief health officers, for instance, or um, other bureaucrats who are not elected, uh, they're not accountable in the same way um, as politicians are to the public, when we're giving them uh, the power to make laws or rules that mean that, for instance, I'm from Melbourne, uh, that you might be locked out of, uh, locked in your home for 22 or 23 hours a day, uh, locked in a five kilometre radius from your home, uh, curfews, restrictions on who can go, uh, who can go um, and when, all these sorts of issues that really impinge upon people's liberties, but weren't subject to the usual debate and scrutiny in Parliament. I mean, is another case of this, Pat, uh, I suppose, that issue about, from an immigration perspective as well, the, the inability to leave your own country? I mean, that, that seemed like an extraordinary measure. Is that sort of without precedent? Well, I wouldn't say it's totally without precedent. Uh, we do have some... Um, examples of similar sorts of uh, decisions about 100 years ago with the Spanish flu. But certainly they are uh, abnormal and they are uh, measures that should not be entered into lightly, I think. Uh, and I think that most people would agree that although they might have been necessary in a given public health context, uh, it's better and, and more proper that those decisions be made by elected representatives who are accountable for their decisions and in a way that's transparent and uh, able to be uh, subject to proper public scrutiny. On, on the issue of federalism, so as, a, as an organisation committed to promoting the values of a federal system, how could federalism have played a better role handling issues of the pandemic? Because it seemed that, if anything, it was a perfect example of federalism at work, different states responding differently to the needs of uh, of their own electorates rather than Canberra probably at some points played a, lim a more limited role than what certainly members of the public seem to uh, to be implied. There were many cases where the federal government was 
uh, called upon to, to take a more of a national leadership role. And in many cases, that was delegated to states, you know, particularly probably Western Australia and Victoria being key examples there. Uh, is it, is, was it not a reflection of federalism at work? Well, I think it was actually a reflection of some of the positive elements of federalism. I think there are two points I'd want to touch on there. The first is, as you mentioned, um, that state premiers are a little more responsive to the needs of their own particular constituencies uh, than perhaps a national figure might have been. And we saw, I think, a bit of pol policy um, federalism at work um, because uh, we saw as restrictions were easing, uh, different states almost competing to be the ones that uh, opened up first uh, or uh, opened up in a, a bigger and more meaningful way first. And uh, I think, you know, that sort of competitive federalism in the policy space is really important because it creates a, uh, I suppose, a driving force for responsiveness to the needs of the electorate. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing I think is just in terms of containing some of the um, the, the worst excesses of the, the response to COVID. I think that if you, and I might be biased as a Victorian, but if you look at um, what we had here, or maybe what, what happened in um, other states, that you might not want replicated at a national level. I think having um, effectively eight different governments making rules meant that you didn't have uh, one national government imposing a whole host of very uh, strict and draconian measures upon the whole population. Because I think people saw, for instance, what happened in Melbourne and uh, other states said, look, we don't want to ever end up in a situation where we have people under curfew and locked in their homes for 23 hours a day or 22 hours a day. So I think those were both benefits of our federal system that uh, I think people might overlook because you're right, a lot of people have said it wouldn't have been better if the Morrison government just took over the whole response and stopped uh, state governments from doing this or doing that. But I think mm. um, you've also got to think about the the other side of the coin. What mm. if Daniel Andrews was the prime minister and what if he had decided that the whole country should be under curfew? And for those who are sort of joining us live, a reminder to, to flick through your questions so that we can get to those through the course of the conversation. Uh, Xavier, as far as the, the, the work that you're doing, why is it that that the, the work is so fundamental right now. is Australia is a country that's blessed. You know, we, we've, we tend to have great, quite high levels of social cohesion compared to the rest of the world. Our economy is strong. Uh, is, there a, is there a crisis or, or are there issues emerging in, within the constitutional and, and legal underpinnings that, that's, that, that we should be aware of? I mean, our position would be that Australia's good fortune is due in no small part to our strong constitutional underpinning and that legal framework. And that's why, first and foremost, the society's mission is to defend the constitution and defend our system of government. I don't think we would have had 30 years of essentially uninterrupted economic growth and prosperity if we didn't have the rule of law, if we didn't have the separation of powers, if we didn't have these um, central foundations upon which uh, everything in our society can be built. You know, uh, you can't have commerce without a legal system or without the rule of law. And so I think that first and foremost, that's where the society wants to have impact is not in um, agitating for change necessarily, but um, protecting the situation and the constitution that we have. 
because there are always those who want to radically change our way of life. Um, even only a few weeks ago, the Republican movement released a proposal to engage in radical and wholesale change to the Constitution. Um, and, and we say, look, the system's working well. So if it's working well and there's no strong case for change, then don't change it. Well, wouldn't the, wouldn't the upshot be that if it's worked, it may have worked well in the past, but would not an alternative form potentially work better than constitutional monarchy is working? How do you respond to that? Well, I think the the ones that are making that claim uh, are the ones that need to uh, provide the evidence to support it. So although, you know, we certainly would say there are elements of our system that could be improved, I mean, we don't think that the current uh, state of affairs, certainly I don't think the current state of affairs is entirely reflective of what was intended by our founders. Um, and there are serious issues that we look at, like uh, the vertical fiscal imbalance between the Commonwealth and the states, for instance, or the policy of horizontal fiscal equalisation uh, in the distribution of the GST. So there are some um, some issues there around um, federalism in the in fiscal policy that um, we are concerned with and, and would like to see improved. But overall, I think the system works very well. Uh, we have a strong legal system. We have a separation of powers. Um, and although there are certain issues around the edges that um, could do with some tinkering, I think it's really incumbent on those who are calling for change to actually make the case for that. And I just haven't seen anything uh, close to a strong case. Look, let's let's touch on some of those things that, that we might consider to be uh, threats uh, and, and developments of recent years. Uh, let, let, look, let's pick one that's that's a bit controversial. Now, does we're, we're touching on here the federal court. Now, does government have a duty to protect young people from climate change? Well, Glenn, it's a, it's a very interesting and topical um, issue. And I think the short answer is no, as the full court of the federal court said recently. But I think what this issue highlights, and for your viewers who might not be aware of, of what we're discussing, I think most people would have heard of the so-called uh, children's or school children's climate class action case recently, where you had one judge of the federal court at trial at first instance say that the Commonwealth government had a duty of care to protect young people and, and children from the dangers of climate change in quite a radical decision that really looked at public policy um, debates and arguments rather than legal arguments and made a, a, a decision based on that broader consideration. So you had that. And then more recently, we've had an appeal in that matter to the full court of the federal court and a, quite a strong decision, I thought, unanimously uh, rejecting that approach, um, re-emphasising the role of judges as not being the same as of elected politicians, of parliamentarians, um, and really being focused quite narrowly on the legal issues in a given case, not the broader public policy questions. I mean, we can have a debate about climate change, um, but that's really not um, the role of the legal system and judges to be weighing into those sorts of issues because it's not their expertise. So I think it comes back to a broader issue about what do we think judges should be doing? What is their role? Uh, what is the proper separation of judicial versus legislative or executive powers in our system of government? 
Well, I mean, this is this is an issue we often talk about, really, in the United States contest uh, or context, uh, and this is the you know the 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 issues around uh, you know constitutional originalists and and, and so called activists and you know and revisionists and so on. Tell us, can you give us a big picture of what that discussion is all about, and is it something that really plays a role in Australia? I think um, obviously the most immediate example of where these issues play out is the US. But uh, that doesn't mean that they don't play out here as well. It's just perhaps that we don't talk about them um, as frequently. So I think there is uh, a debate to be had on you know, one side, those who think that uh, judges are lawmakers and that they should uh, and do um, weigh into a broader analysis of uh, what would be good for society, um, what would be good for humanity. And they use that to influence their decisions and to make laws. Uh, and on the other hand, there are those like the society that would say uh, that the judge's role is to look at the law as written and intended and to apply it, interpret it and apply it um, as parliaments who are the elected representatives chosen to make the laws on the behalf of the people have um, decided it should be um, interpreted. So I think that's the debate. And it does play out all the time in important issues. I mean, at the moment, um, you have the debate in the United States about uh, Roe v. Wade. Um, and that has obviously huge ramifications for, uh, on one hand, um, uh, women's access to abortion. And on the other hand, the uh, right of states to make laws relating to abortion at their own level rather than having a single national approach. So that's a hugely consequential issue for, um, for thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of, of women and also of unborn um, children. Mm. And so, so to take, you know, one position might be that with its capacity, the Supreme Court should be making decisions that, uh, that are in the best interests of the people serving uh, in, in particular women, but of course, you know, uh, uh, more broad as well, but, you know, that, that that's, there's a, an obligation upon members of the Supreme Court to ensure that the decisions that are made in the best interests of the population. Uh, how could, how could it be that, that's given the opportunity, how could, how could uh, a member of the, the Supreme Court make a decision that potentially could harm members of the population? Well, I think the important thing to note there, although that might seem like a very compelling argument and, you know, I can see some merit in why people would think that way. The important thing to remember is that a lot of these, these issues that appear, appear before the court are the most hotly contested issues in our society. And so there's not one clear answer of what's right and wrong or what's good in a given context because there's a debate. Um, you know, there are other issues where the debate has been long settled um, and you know the law as a result is more settled but for a lot of these issues it's hotly contested still and so it's really a question of um, what is the best forum for having that contest of ideas having that debate and um, with greatest respect to our judges who are all um, very qualified and intelligent people they're not subject to the same accountability as politicians are because they're not elected 
And there's good reason for that. It preserves judicial independence, but it also means that in terms of, as I say, a forum, um, I, I would say that uh, parliament is the better forum because our politicians can be held accountable. If they make a decision that the people disagree with, they can be voted out. And we have regular elections giving that opportunity, whereas a judge has got effectively a life tenure up to retirement age. And so um, they can't be replaced. And if they uh, make a decision that's wrong, it's not um, in keeping with what the public uh, feels is right, uh, then there's no recourse. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a sense that, that uh, an increasing number of those entering the legal profession would be considered to be more uh, active or interpretivist around the contents of law or and is that is that something that we should be concerned about i think it is something we should be concerned about i think that there has traditionally been a a fairly clear separation between politics and the legal system and i think that's something that we need to preserve although a lot of uh, lawyers might consider themselves to be um you know on the same level as politicians if you want to make laws about contentious issues and you want to have a role in that debate then you should put yourself forward um, for election you should subject yourself to the same scrutiny that other lawmakers are subjected to um, because although i think most australians if not all australians could name the prime minister and the opposition leader i doubt that many could name the judges on the high court let alone judges on the federal court or on state supreme courts um, because uh, and as I, as I said before um, with good reason those people are not subject to the same level of public scrutiny as our politicians and that's important to protect the independence of the judiciary but hand in hand with that judicial independence goes the separation of powers and parliamentary supremacy mm. and I mean there's other cases I suppose prominent cases here in Australia that that probably members of the public would follow through the news, but probably don't have a fuller understanding of of really the kind of un- underlying meanings from a constitutional and legal perspective. Perhaps one was probably the the Love case. It's probably a good example of that. That uh, obviously people would have uh, followed a little bit, but if you can give us, you know, the quick digest of of what the case found and why it found in, in the way it did and what the kind of implications are, because it's something that does seem to impact upon, of course, a, a broader spectrum of the population. Yeah, it, it was a very uh, consequential case. And in fact, it's currently under challenge. And the High Court is, I think, soon to make a decision about that challenge. Um, so I, I won't um, comment too much on that challenge, Montgomery, that's currently underfoot. But um, what I will say is uh, the court is often called upon to interpret particular provisions or phrases in the constitution. In this case, in the Love case, it was called upon to determine what the term aliens meant uh, for the purposes of our immigration system. Mm. And the court, I think it's fair to say, in in a fairly um, controversial decision that was very close, it was a 4-3 decision. So four of the judges had some sort of agreement about the outcome and three of the judges had an opposition to that. Um, so the narrowest possible margin, um, the court uh, decided that there are aliens, basically foreigners, who aren't uh, citizens of Australia. There are citizens. And then there, there's this third new category that has never been 
talked about or, or known of before, which is non-citizens non, and who are also non-aliens. Mm. And they did this on the basis of um, an assessment of sort of cultural and spiritual arguments about um, Indigenous Australians. And again, I think that's a debate that we can have, but it's about the forum for that debate. And I think there's been an ongoing debate recently about um, recognition um, and there's a public debate that's going on at the moment and Parliament might take up this issue. Um, but for, uh, for unelected judges, as intelligent and well-qualified as they are, to basically make the decision um, for the country outside of the process of that public debate, I think that's where... Um, I see the decision as being um, quite radical and I think uh, quite controversial. And so it's not a surprise to me that that decision has so quickly been challenged. Look, we don't have much time left, but it's something I do want to touch on because it's an issue that's that's dominated political discussions for probably five years or, or more, is uh, at least at the federal level, is the issue of a National Integrity Commission. And this is something that, that's, um, that certainly stirred up a lot of interest particularly around some uh, some some candidates now we won't talk about the specific policies of either party in this forum but but can tell us a little bit about what the merits or otherwise are of a national integrity commission and why is this something that that um, that is such a controversial and topical issue in australia yeah i mean it's a hugely topical issue at the moment and i think um Chris Merritt has written a lot of very good stuff on this issue in The Australian, um, and I encourage your viewers to uh, check out some of his writing on it. Um, but in terms of the broader issues, I think there are a number of concerns that, that I have about um, these so-called integrity commissions. The first is that they, they act like courts, but in a, an extra judicial manner. They're not subject to the same sorts of... Um, requirements as courts are but they have hearings and they sometimes have public hearings and um, the concern i have is that sometimes they can uh, look like kangaroo courts and we need to resist that because the presumption of innocence is fundamental to our legal system the rule of law is one of those critical underpinnings of our system that um, we couldn't um, we couldn't enjoy the benefits that we have enjoyed without um, the rule of law so I think when you have these um, c commissions that um, act like courts but aren't subject to the same uh, strict rules of procedure that are meant to counterbalance the power that courts have, you see situations where um, justice can be undermined and um, also where people can be subject to these very damaging um, public accusations uh, and have no real recourse and no, no real ability to defend themselves. But I think even if, I mean, we, I think we all agree there should be um, action taken to stop corruption and to promote integrity. But sometimes, I mean, if you look at, for instance, the New South Wales ICAC, um, the work of those commissions actually can undermine the um, administration of justice through the proper legal system. Uh, the Obeid case recently was only decided recently um, and was significantly delayed so you had some um, allegations that were not able to be tested for quite some time and um, some individuals who did not see justice um, and w were not able to be held accountable 
because the media scrutiny, the public attention due to ICAC actually delayed the trial. And I mean, the, the, I suppose the counterpoint to that is that the public exposure through through media uh, would ha- would have a deterrent effect upon other individuals who might, you know, might consider conduct that that would potentially find its way to to an, an integrity commission or other. What if what if it is the case that it, maybe the particular you know events we've had to date, the high profile ones that that have garnered media attention is it not also possible that that um the nature of being a high profile forum actually can have a deterrent effect on future offenders well i think you know if we allow the legal system to play out uh, and you know if we if we detect criminal corruption and it's prosecuted uh then that's the best deterrent that there is i mean and uh, i mentioned the obeds i mean they've been found guilty and so i think that you know the the punishment of the um, the conduct which they engaged in by the legal system is the best deterrent. But I think um, the problem that we're seeing at the moment with some of the discussion around um, corruption and integrity is that um, some of the conduct that might be captured is not criminal conduct, and it's it's really um, a grey area between what is acceptable in the um, the everyday functioning of the executive. Um, uh, you know, what are political matters that the executive should be allowed to determine because they're elected? Um, and um, and how is that different um, to criminal conduct? So I think that's where some of these issues become very murky and where um, we've got to be careful that we don't um, go too far in sort of trying to um, create a sort of general deterrence about um, corruption when we don't have a, a clear and solid definition of what corruption is and what the limits of that term are. So just about out of time, but if we, if you can give our viewers of the program a quick one or two minute response, what what will it take to improve the constitutional and legal foundations in Australia? And secondly, where can where can everyone access and find uh, the the research papers for presenters of your conference? So I'll start with the second question um, because that's the easy one, I suppose. Um, we have a website samuelgriffith.org and um, the society is named after the author of the constitution sir samuel griffith who was also the first chief justice of australia i think in answer to the first part of your question i would say look to his work and the work of the other uh, drafters of the constitution and and the uh, early members of the high court Um, really i would encourage our lawmakers and our judges to return to those original uh, underpinnings of the system, uh, what the constitution was intended to mean, the limits it was intended to place upon uh, power, both of uh, politicians, governments, and also of judges, and um, to look at the federal compact between the people of Australia in adopting the constitution and voting to federate and their political representatives. Xavier, a lot, a lot covered in the last half hour. Uh, obviously, plenty more that could be talked to as well. But I'd like to thank you for being part of On Liberty. Thanks very much, Glenn. It's been a privilege to join you. And that was episode 89 of On Liberty. Up next week, your regular host, Salvatore Babonis, is back in the chair, and he'll be joined by academic Bob Cately. 
We look forward to seeing you next time for that episode and future events here at CIS. Bye for now.